Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks for being with me here on the Enrealment Hour. I'm so grateful. This week's guest is someone whose work called out to me decades ago when I was becoming a criminal lawyer in Toronto. I would read his horoscopes in Now magazine and find myself both stilled and energized by his words. It was just the horoscope. It was the luminosity of his writing voice. It was evident to me that this man had somehow found a way in a world that often seems determined to turn us generic to not only maintain a connection to his uniquely individuated voice, but to deepen it and transform it over time. That great accomplishment gave me hope. And it would call out to my own path. I would read him and be reminded of that part of me that knew that one day I would write. I wasn't ready yet. I had to go through many other stages first. But I knew that it was in there, a soul's calling that longed to be lived. Rob Bresney is an aspiring master of curiosity, perpetrator of sacred uproar, and founder of the Beauty and Truth Lab. He writes Free Will Astrology, a syndicated weekly column that appears in over 100 publications in North America, as well as in translation in Italy, France, Japan, and the Netherlands. In its profile of Bresney, the New York Times reported that his horoscopes are like valentines, buoyant and spilling over with mischievousness. They're a soul prognosis. The Sacramento News and Review seconded the motion. Quote, Free will astrology is a well-crafted compendium of poetry, anecdotes, aphorisms, and wit. It's a literate love letter that has no precedence in the media. Close quote. Rob has published three books. The most recent is Pronoia is the Antidote for Paranoia, How the Whole World is Conspiring to Shower You with Blessings. And he will soon bring two more brilliant books to the world. The first, Lucky Storms, is a novelized memoir that blends multiple love stories. And the next, Astrology is Real, Revelations from My Life as a Horoscope Columnist. It's both a memoir and a meditation on how astrology is a form of storytelling that serves as an antidote to the hyper-rational, machine-driven modes of intelligence that are decimating the planet. You can find more of Rob's work on Substack, Facebook, Instagram, and on his main website at freewillastrology.com. A number of years ago, Rob and I became friends on Facebook. Our connection deepened when we found a shared residence around some of my work deconstructing patriarchal spirituality. And then he wrote a profoundly generous blurb for my book, Grounded Spirituality. It meant so much to me to be endorsed by someone whose work had been like a lighthouse on my own writing path. On that path, one that prioritizes the soul's voice, it can be very difficult to find validation, living as we do 
in a world that often prioritizes something far more practical. And so his book blurb, in a certain way, brought my soul full circle and confirmed that I had been on the right path all along. In this conversation, we focus on two primary themes. The dangerous nature of patriarchal spiritualities and why it is that they will not serve humanity going forward. And, and how it is that one cultivates, deepens, and sustains their own unique and empowered voice in a generic cultural landscape. As our world gets closer and closer to a dangerous precipice, I feel certain that the only thing that can save us is a whole collection of sovereign and self-originating individuals who fought with all that they are, often against great odds, for their brilliantly individuated sacred blueprint. The ones who have really done the work in the fires of self-creation to shape themselves into the most uniquely constructed version of themselves and who now have profoundly helpful and essential callings, gifts, and offerings, the fruits of their courageous labor to bring to our starving world. I believe we can all be that, and that if we look really close, we may already be that, without even realizing it. There is so much genius lying in wait within us, ready or readying to be humanifest. And speaking of genius, here's a little bit from Trevor Hall and his song, Arrows, to set the tone for the conversation to come. Got me bleeding, a certain kind of feeling. I, 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 but I can never leave it. Good God, I know I need it. Arrows come straight for my heart. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Jeff. So much welcome. Hi. Really glad to talk with you. Yeah. I thought I'd start by just reading a definition I wrote many years ago. I was going through a stage of really sort of calling out and critically reviewing what I would call ungrounded spiritualities or the new cage movement. And I wrote a definition of patriarchal spirituality, and then you shared it, and we began to connect more and find this point of resonance with respect to this way of thinking. So just take a couple of minutes to read it, but I think it'll help to frame the conversation for the listeners. So patriarchal spirituality those ungrounded and inhumane spiritual models that have been fostered by emotionally armored, self-avoidant men. These models share some or all of the following beliefs. The ego is the enemy of a spiritual life. The monkey mind is the cause of suffering. Your feelings are an illusion. Your personal identifications and stories are necessarily false. Witnessing your pain transforms it. Your body is a spiritually bankrupt, toxic quagmire. The only real consciousness is an absolute and transcendent one. 
Stillness and silence are the path. Isolation is the best way to access higher states. There is no self. Meditation is the royal road to enlightenment. Enlightenment actually exists. Formlessness over form. The ultimate path is upward and vertical. And lastly, the idea that real spirituality exists independent of our humanness. In fact, most of the above is a blatant lie. Here are more accurate hypotheses about the nature of human life. You help me with that sentence. A healthy ego is beautifully essential to healthy functioning. The monkey mind is fed by the monkey heart, the unresolved emotional body. Many of our identities and stories are fundamental to who we are, where we have been, and why we're here. Healing your pain actually transforms it. Watching it is only a preliminary step. Our bodies are our spiritual temples. The only real consciousness is one that integrates all that we are and all that this is. Stillness and silence are only one path. Many people prefer movement and sound. There is no higher state. We aren't birds. But connection may be the best way to access deepened states. There's a magnificent self. The work is to align it with your sacred purpose, not to deny it altogether. Meditation is not the royal road. It's one road, and it's not any more effective than embodied movement and emotional release as a clarification and transformation tool. Enlightenment doesn't exist. Enrealment does. And it's a relative experience, changing form as we and this changes form. We are form, and we're here to inform our humanness. If there's an ultimate path, it's downward, rooted, and horizontal. And finally, there is no distinction between our spirituality and our humanness. The wool has been pulled over our eyes. Men who were too unhealthily egoic to admit that they couldn't deal with their humanness, their feelings, their trauma, had to find a system that smokescreened their avoidance. They found it. It's called enlightenment. It's also called spiritual mastery. And it usually involves leaving the world in one form or another. This way, they can convince themselves and others that they've mastered the one true path. In fact, enlightenment is just a construct that is intended to avoid the multi-aspected nature of reality. In fact, they're mastering nothing. They're merely fleeing their fragmentation, their confusion, and the fact that they don't know how to find their center in the heart of the world. Don't be fooled. They know less about reality than day-to-day people. They know less about reality than those who live from their hearts. What we need now are models that lead us back into our hearts, into relatedness, into a deep and reverential regard for the self. Those models may invite us to detach in an effort to see ourselves through a different lens, but they won't leave us out there, floating into the internal emptiness and calling that a life. Detachment is a tool. It's not a life. The models we need will then invite us back into our bodies, back into our hearts, and back into relatedness with each other. No more enlightened in quotes, masters sitting in caves while the women of the village bring them food. If you can't find your transformation in the village, you haven't found shit. They'll integrate us, they'll invite us to integrate what we found out there with who we are in here. They will invite us to embody the now rather than to pretend we have found it in the heart of our dissociation. It's time to co-create spiritual models that begin and end within our wondrous humanness. It's not out there, dear friends. It's right here inside these aging body temples. Close quote. Thanks for your patience.
So that seems to have brought us together in terms of resonance and in terms of perspective. I guess I'm, I'm just curious for you as to what plugged you into that when you first saw that. I agree with everything you said. And that's an unusual thing for me to say. There are very few people with whom, for whom, with whom I can say, I agree with every single thing that you said. <laughs> that's unheard of in my world, but I, regard what you said as a kind of manifesto for what's important to me and what has been important for me these last five years. I think maybe I could trace it back to the fact that I became a feminist when I was 19 years old, many decades ago, and realized that um, all the oppressive forms that I wanted to personally crusade against, patriarchal misogyny and sexism was the most interesting fight for me. So I've, I've thought long about that and worked hard on it. And uh, I think that you have um, brought in great detail all the different ramifications of this patriarchal ambience we swim in. You've brought them all down into their glorious detail and presented what I consider to be a kind of plan of action that is inspiring to me. Some of, some of these things I've come to on my own. Some of them ripened in me and um, expedited in me. And uh, so I'm very grateful for your appearance in my life. And um, I would hope that there will be more that see this light and join and fight in their own particular way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you feel is is in the way of us returning back or perhaps returning for the first time to an experience of spirituality as humanness? I think there's a lot of it in action in the world. I think that the Earth-based religions are doing it to some degree. Mm -hmm. There is some precedence for that in, in our past, in the indigenous past that all of us come from. I, I come from indigenous Polish and Slovakian roots, and we are, my people had their own indigenous traditions that preceded the Christian gloss, and I think there are a lot of people returning to those roots, and that's that's a, a great part of it. Although I think that you've articulated a, a, a very new perspective that uh, goes even further. And how do we do that? How do I think it's important? And I, I wanted to say this coming in that you and I both become very passionate and zealous about these ideas, and we feel very strongly about them, and I know I get into a lot of arguments with people who I consider to be the holders, the bearers of, of patriarchal spirituality, but what lies behind it all is our love, is our love for human beings and what they actually are and who they, how they actually live, and to, so that's our, that's our main motivating force, and I think that it's important, at least for me, I'll, I'll speak for myself, it's important for me, especially when I'm in the heat of arguments, to remember that's where it all comes from. And uh, I think ultimately, we need to be, uh, those of us who speak these truths, need to be grounded in where those ideas come from, because that's going to convey the ultimate inspirational influence that people are drawn to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember um, I was sitting in this mall outside of Toronto, and I went and bought this book 
called The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And I started to read it. And then I threw it. And I said, why are you so violent about in your response to this book that I now call The New Mars? Because it's certainly not an earth that I want to live on. <laughs> um, and it was very clear to me it was because I loved humanity. Yeah. Um, and I know I have all kinds of reasons not to, but, but I do. And I critically review spiritual teachings because I care about humanity. I think we're at a, a horrifyingly dangerous precipice. And I would like to bring back the billion or so people who are calling themselves spiritual who, without realizing it, have bought into a dissociated notion of awakening. Because we need them. We need their boots on the ground and their hearts on the sleeve, their sleeve. And we don't need them pondering their navels and calling that awakening. We, you know, I understand why the men created this. You know, men, men want to be the master. So they couldn't master the body. It's too complicated. You can't really master the emotional realm. You can't really fully master the egoic realms. So you just say that all of those things are subspiritual and craft a whole new language and outfits and phony names and all the rest of it to convince yourself that you have transcended the human experience. Of course, you can't transcend the human experience while you're in your body. It doesn't even really make sense. But I understand why this happened. And it's been hard for me because I came in hard on this for a few years. And, and I yeah. felt that I had to. I was, you know, it was a war. It's a consciousness war. And I'm trying to be more compassionate towards what motivates, really, for me, all of these notions of patriarchal spirituality are the bypass. People talk about bypassers. I think that anybody who calls themselves spiritual, if they look really closely, is on one level or another actually bypassing elements of reality and calling that a sacred path. So I'm always coming from love, but I have a warrior nature, so it may not be that obvious. So but thank you for reminding me of, of that. It's important because the transmission does matter. And where possible to transmit it from a more softer, more benevolent place might invite people to listen more readily. Well, I learned that in raising my daughter that I taught her by who I was and how I acted. Sometimes by what I said, but what I had to teach her, but more often by who I was and what I embodied. And I think that's the main teaching that she got from me. And uh, I, I think that that's a valid approach in addressing all those people who might be drawn to us, you or me, uh, who genuinely want to revision their approach to, to spirituality. And uh, so if we can model that for them, it doesn't mean that we're not angry. It doesn't mean that we're not combative. I don't think that's not what I'm saying. We need to be combative and we need to be angry constructively. But we also need to have a very hearty access to the roots of why we feel this way. And that, so that's what I aspire to do in, in my work. On your journey, your own transformative therapeutic integration journey, did you go through stages when you felt more identified with these patriarchal notions of spirituality? Thank God, as I never did. I, I've, I've wow. been from the beginning, and I, I don't know to account for that other than peculiarly good relationship that my mother and father had perhaps that had something to do with it uh, past life experiences i can't exactly account for it but i was so adamantly 
committed and devoted to undermining patriarchy from the time I was 19 years old. So it has to keep growing. It has to keep maturing. It has to keep ripening. And you and I, and, and we're all immersed in this culture in which we're getting bombarded by signals of patriarchal spirituality all the time. And I do compare it to a fish saying, what water? Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. You're swimming in water. It's everywhere. It's water. everywhere. <laughs> and, and so even a lot of women are very immersed in patriarchal ideas because that's what they lived all their lives in. And so I have to constantly be checking myself for to what degree I might be inadvertently buying into to patriarchal ideas and feelings and, and modes. And uh, I'm doing that. So for me, the process of undoing is one of my primary spiritual tasks. Uh, I, I call it, you know, as much as I dislike St. Paul, the disciple of Jesus, he articulated that principle that's very important to me, which is I die daily. I die daily. In some metaphorical way, I, I seek to continually question myself and undo myself for my own fixations or ways in which I've gone astray and begun to buy into the collective hallucination and uh, how I might be expressing patriarchal spirituality. So it's a never-ending process, as you know. You don't perfect it and you don't master it at some point. You just have to keep working on it. That's part of the spiritual task, I think, is there is no enlightenment. There's no perfect state. There's no final accomplishment. It's just ongoing, plugging away with as much enjoyment as play and playfulness as we can summon. And um, understand it, it never stops. Absolutely. I think what you say is really important that, I mean, it's everywhere. So, you know, I went from a kind of more gross realm critique to a much more subtle realm critique. And, you know, I would catch myself saying things like rising above. And I'd say, well, does rising above what? Or higher than, you know, behave, you know, we're going to be higher than, we're not going to. There's so much language around this um, and more obvious stuff, you know, artificial forgiveness stuff, um, criticizing people for judging, even if it's a healthy right. conscious discernment. Um, I mean, what's so interesting to me, Rob, is that these all these parts of society, the economic realm, the political realm, the religious realm, patriarchy got called out, has been being called out and critiqued for a very long time. But I walked into this and I was like, the spiritual realm has almost never been critiqued. Yeah. And when you do, they say that's not spiritual. Like, I mean, they've, they've worked us. They have worked us. So that critical review, freedom of expression, discussing whether something is dangerous or healthy for humanity in this particular realm is seen as some kind of a anti-spiritual act. And it makes perfect sense. The guru set it up perfectly so that they would be bowed to. Godjectified, that they would never be judged. Judgment wasn't allowed. Gossip wasn't allowed. You weren't allowed to be angry. Angry was substand. Anger was substandard, and you always had to forgive. It's the perfect recipe for disaster. Guru can do anything they want, but somehow it's been going on for hundreds of years, and very few people have felt comfortable naturally, organically critiquing it. Um, and it's 2022. Well, I think that, that there are people who are dominated by the rational perspective and who are what I call fundamentalist materialists who have criticized 
guruism and religion, but it's from a very different perspective. It's, it's from outside. It's from a perspective that thinks that no spirituality, no religion has any validity whatsoever. And I think what's different about you and me and maybe Andrew Harvey is that we do, we do feel reverence. We do feel the sense of the sacred. We, we do love the great mystery and, and we understand the power of reverence and, and awe and, and the kind of, uh, of love that comes from beyond just the, the neurotic level. So, so we're kind of criticizing from the inside. And I think that's, that's the really new thing. People aren't ready for that. Or, you know, we can see how a lot of angry people are triggered by you and by me. And I don't know Andrew so well, but it, it is insulting to them that how dare we, we who seem to be one of them are critiquing these ancient uh, oppressions. And calling them oppressions. Yeah. Calling them oppressions. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it, it makes sense to me why there is so much resistance, you know, and in you had endorsed, wrote me beautiful endorsement for grounded spirituality that rocked my world. So thank you for that, that aside. But Andrew talked in the foreword about really that what I was talking about was re-embodiment. And for everybody in this overwhelmed, and I believe manipulated to be overwhelmed and dissociated, overstimulated culture, to then have to slow down, find their way back to the center, drop back down energetically into the body, out of the mind, um, and to encounter all that unresolved trauma, all the unsaid fuck you, all the unreleased tears and grief that they're holding is an enormous task, particularly for most people who are flooded and already somewhat dissociated and culturally manipulated to be so by economic and political forces. Um, so I get it. It's a lot to ask. It's a big ask, but it seems to me it's the only ask possible both on an individual healing and transformation level, but also to save the species from its own trappings. Yeah. Yeah. Because it ultimately I agree with what you, everything you just said. And I think that's really what fuels, uh, ecocide. I think that's why we can blithely destroy the earth. And what we just read two days ago that 70% of the wild animals have disappeared in the last 40 years. That happens because of the dissociation that you've described so well and the, um, the, the trauma that it requires a lot of effort and a lot of bravery to deal with. And people who can help us are relatively few. And a lot of people who we think can help us can't help us. And they're, they're kind of, they're pretenders. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but I, but that's why we're just, I mean, ultimately, that's why the earth is being genocided, why the imagination is being genocided, is because of the exact conditions that you've described. So I, I see it, as you do, as a life and death matter. It's, it's, this is not a Sunday stroll, you know, this is, this is tough stuff. This is the real deal now. Yeah. No more time to fuck around, kids. You know, it's interesting, when I had my first experiences of what I consider to be sort of presence, I experienced presence as a whole being experienced through my body. I was a little boy in a crazy house and I was a tantrumer. 
I did what Alexander Lowen did into his nineties. I just kept tantruming as a kid because I somehow knew that that was the way back to a feeling of freshness of appreciation, not in my mind, not beginner's mind, beginner's heart. Um, and I would do that on the earth. We lived on this house street, street called Clay Hall, and I'd go in the backyard as a tiny little one, and I'd move my body around, cry and stretch and feel my connection to the earth. And maybe that's, I've never forgotten that or something. So even as I became more dissociated, joined the world, became a lawyer, went into my head, I never forgot what it felt like to really be here and being here you know, there's a lot of diversionary language and cliches in the spiritual marketing world. The power of now. Well, when I hear Eckhart talk, I don't can't even feel anybody in his body. That if that's nowness, I don't want anything to do with it. Ram Das, I challenged before he died. We had two days of conversation. I said, "You're a bypasser," and at the end of it, he said, "You're right, Jeff. I'm a bypasser. Get out of my house." So, and he was talking about being here now. Now. I get that he had a moment and a period where he felt more dropped into his body after a real heady phase in his life. But I feel like this language is a little tricky. Like, what are we really talking about when we say now? What are we talking about when we say spirituality? What do we mean when we say presence? Just because they stand up there and say the word presence and make certain clothing with a special chair and all the rest of it, doesn't mean they're talking about what I might consider to be a healthy experience of presence with all of your parts at the table, what I call enrealment, all of your aspects invited to the table, including the emotional body, including the honoring of your personal identification, the honoring of the self. So they call it the absolute self. What does that even mean? I mean, if you really think about it, it doesn't mean anything. It means you're floating into some equanimity, nothingness with no personal connection to anything around you. Well, that's good work if you can get it for a while. But Eventually, you got to come back home and live in the body as your experience of presence, or you're not here for this lifetime. You know, you're not here for this lifetime. Yeah. You know what I wrote for the endorsement for your book? That in part, that all the people we regard as geniuses right now and as visionaries are working on 3D printers and creating alternative virtual realities and various technological innovations, whereas if we have any hope of redemption, it, we need geniuses like you who are working on ripening what intellig- emotional intelligence is, what, what the heart's power is, and, and not, not just rhetorically, but in the very uh, hands-on way that you do, and expressing that for people. And I think you do a wonderful job of articulating these ideas, and I think you... Um, you do have the power to reach a lot of people with your very rigorous language and, and your your clear ex- expression. But I would we need more geniuses who are willing to do the work on intimate relationships. Like say, like I consider John Wellwood one of those people. One of those on redeeming the what does it mean to be emotionally intelligent? What does it mean to to um, confront one's uh, monkey heart and and to work with one's monkey heart and face one's trauma. What, what is that? We need geniuses who are doing that work, and there aren't enough of them. And uh, maybe you can tell me whether there are people like me who have been activated by your work and who are excited by it, who are joining the team and, uh, and getting uh, into the crusade in their own way. Yeah, there's a large number of 
people that are really into grounded spirituality. Not simply the book, but the way of being, the vision of possibility for humanity, the and have the willingness to fight for their rights to the light in a very distracted and dissociated world. I think that's happening. I think that, I mean, I think the pandemic went two ways. A lot of people dissociated more than they had before, and a great number of people started to, were forced to confront their material because there was nowhere to escape to, and began to actually do work around acknowledging the existence of their trauma. So that gives me hope that more people with the willingness to take this to the next level will be birthed. But going back to your first point, you know, I just kept feeling like it's like, can't we just get this human thing right first before we try to get the not human thing right? <laughs> I mean, we're so fucked up. I mean, the two things it seems to me that are the most important things to ever learn as a child is how to deal with your feelings and how to relate to other humans. Nobody taught a shit about either of those things. Right. So now, instead of going, wait a minute, we need to get back to these fun, we got to like build some scaffolding for what it means to be a conscious, emotionally healthy, relational human before we start thinking about AI. Yeah. I mean, in the wrong hands, which is very difficult not to imagine in a dissociated world with a bunch of power brokers working the people for their own purposes, is terrifying to me at this stage of human development. We don't even know how to talk to each other. We don't even know how to listen to each other. <laughs> We don't even know what to do with our feelings. I mean, this is what Alexander Lowen was saying forever with bioenergetics. Like, we don't know what, we don't even know where, what we're holding inside of our bodies from ancestrally, generationally, and from our individual life experience. So before we start thinking about what we're doing next, why don't we, why don't we take like a holiday and just start clearing some emotional debris so we can experience presence from within the body and with the feet rooted on earth? And maybe if we do that, we'll realize we don't need all that other stuff because it feels really good to just be an integrated human, feet on the earth, in your heart, in your body. Mm -hmm. Radical. Well, I, I share your feeling that this is a terrifying pivot. And at the same time, I think it's important for you and me and for those of us who want to help this grounding happen, that we not be too terrified, that we not be overwhelmed by our terror. Um, that's, you know, you know, my book, Pronoia is the Antidote for Paranoia, and that, that book doesn't propose that there's no reason to be afraid. It doesn't say there are no problems in the world. It, maybe it more importantly makes the point that, yeah, there's a hell of a lot of shit in the world that we better be very wary of and devote all our attention to fixing. But in order to accomplish that, we also have to be in full, visceral, daily sense with the bounty of life. It has to be a felt experience every day of our lives, because if it's not, we're going to buy into the, the people who create the terror. We're going to buy into their way of thinking. So for me, it's really, it's, it's not easy. I'm, I, I have to teach myself what I'm trying to teach other people. It's not easy to be in that state of just the enjoyment of being in a body, the enjoyment of life, the bounty that comes our way all the time. We have enough to eat, many of us, and we have homes, many of us. And, and there, there are lots of reasons to feel very excited about the glories of life. And I think it's important to keep a beat on that. I mean, it makes sense to me that the manipulative 
aspects out there prey on our uncenteredness. I mean, the, the whole system preys on our uncenteredness. If we're centered, sovereign, grounded, clear, connected to our purpose and our path, they can't hook us very easily. So it's important to understand those systems, those advertisers, those politicos, they're not your friend. The (laughs) entertainment industry, for that matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. The celebrity and celebrity industries. Absolutely. The dicey thing, though, to maintain one's proper discrimination and to be aware in intelligent ways of all the things that are fucked up, while at the same time maintaining one's joy of life. That's a very challenging, ongoing meditation for me. And I'm a person with relative leisure and luxury. And I, and so for those people who don't have leisure and luxury, how are they going to do that? How are they going to stay attuned to the all this terrible about life and also maintain their connection with all this glorious and abundant? That's a, that's a tough, that's a tough task. I mean, there needs to be some kind of revolution, you know, I mean, on all kinds of different levels. I think, I think revolution is upon us in a way that we've never seen before, certainly in the West. Yeah. And, but I, I get it. If you want to fight for the right, your rights of the light, you probably would help if you had had a little bit of light so yeah, that yeah. you know, so you know what you're fighting for. Yes, exactly. That's what I mean. Uh, Naomi Klein, the activist went to Australia to the Aboriginal people to, serve as a consultant for their work in saving their land from exploitation and decimation by industry. And uh, the Aboriginal elders took her out to their favorite natural spots and day one passed and they were just enjoying themselves and swimming and having lovely food and day two passed and just more joy and, and comfort and day three passed. And Naomi said, when are we going to get to the stuff of planning how we're going to save this land? And the elders said something to the effect of, in order to do the work to save this land, we have to be in visceral contact with the joy of this land. That was an important lesson for me. It's very important. You talked about genius before. You know, how do we cultivate? I think of genius as just some people who are just sort of self-originating rather than organized as conformists. You know, I think on my path, without overstating it, um, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, but I remember reading you in Now Magazine before I was a writer. I think it was in my law years, and and I felt like there was some energy coming off this guy's stuff that was self-originating. Like you were in your own thing, languaging your own thing from your own lens, and it wasn't corrupted. I mean, of course, you've grown and been influenced and all those things, but it really felt like it was. this was Rob Bresney's language emanating from the core of Rob Bresney. Well, thank and you. Does that feel right? Absolutely. That's, my, that's been my aspiration since I was a kid. Well, you've absolutely achieved it. So, so I wonder, though, in terms of imparting wisdom in terms of that to people, who would like to be able to be more self-originating, and maybe we've in a way already talked about it, but but were there any things that you in particular did to sort of cultivate or protect your polyphrenic self, your multi-aspected self, from being encroached upon by a world that was determined to make you generic? Like, how did you do this? 
great, great question. And uh, first answer is I took LSD when I was a young man. I didn't take it for very long, but I took it 15 times between the ages of 19 and 22. And I got in touch with the source of life. And that really sustained me all these years. Uh, it's, it was a direct experience of life's bounty. And um, so that was important. The other thing that was important was that I didn't work. I would not work at a straight job. And I, I suffered terrible poverty because of that. I maybe would wash dishes at a restaurant for one day a week, or I would get food stamps. And I'd go to cafeterias where people left food behind, and I'd get the food that they left behind. And that would shore me up when the food stamps ran out. But I was adamant that I was going to write poetry and read books and think philosophy and do music. And I wasn't going to have a job. And that was key to keeping me out of the system. So I couldn't get ground down and immerse myself in the great hearts and minds of the people who have come before us, people who wrote books and made music. And just to, to be gloriously humble in saying, teach me, show me how you did what you did. And and to pay reverence to those great hearts and minds and, and allow them to influence me took me out of the system too, you know, just lifting me up out of the grind and out of the routine. So that was very important. And I think the other was my feminism, which made me extremely sensitive to women. And I grew to understand what their real power was, even though it wasn't. So it wasn't valued by patriarchal society. I saw what it was. I was grateful for it. I asked for it. I basked in it. And in a way, I was raised a feminist milieu. It helped to be in Santa Cruz, where there was a very strong feminist movement. But I think that was the third most important thing. And the other was just uh, to, to play music. And I was a musician for many years. And, and being a musician meant that I was always in an altered state of consciousness, really. Uh, I, I wasn't buying into the, the horrors that ultra-rationalists had had created in the world. And uh, mm -hmm. so it, was, it, it liberated me. It feels to me, tell me if this feels right for you, but it feels, and maybe this is what I felt when I first read you, it felt like you had found a way, and you've just described how you've done this, to stay connected to the prioritization of, of feelings. Of, of the feeling realm as opposed to the overvaluation of the thinking realm, you know? Absolutely. I think that's true. Astrologically predisposed to that because I was born under the sign of cancer, which is the most, in, you know, in traditional astrology says that's one of the most feminine signs. So, uh, and I have other aspects in my natal chart, which suggests a very strong longing to be taught by the feminine and immersed in the feminine. And, uh, and all that feminine typically means in our society, which is the valuation of, of feelings and the, the valuation of one's body experience, the valuation of, of relationship and connection. So, yeah, again, the feminism that, uh, mm -hmm. that is so prime in my life. Did sort of poverty consciousness or anxiety around poverty interfere with these processes or you didn't have so much of that kind of carry forward ancestral poverty anxiety that some of us have. 
Well, I was raised middle class, which I think made it easier for me to be poor when I was an adult. I, I didn't have childhood experience of want and lack. That uh, was really crucial. I think also that I was just so gratified by the life that I was able to live by being poor that it really made the poverty largely irrelevant. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I think this question of how one of the reasons I've been so offended by the patriarchal spiritual structure is because of this emphasis on no self, as though that's something to bow before. And I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, I mean, we already have enough with self-concept issues. We, you know, we're being anti-selfed everywhere we go. It's like, for me, everything meaningful, everything that I bring as an offering is emanating from the work that I did internally to craft to cultivate a very individuated self with a very specific message that's very connected to what I experience as the almost indistinguishable soul self. So the idea that I was going to do all this work on healing the self, clearing the self, honoring the self, which also feels like a way of honoring my ancestry, that I stand on the shoulders of every schlepper before me that got me to this place where I could do this. My grandma Booby said that to me when she said, you're doing the, all the work that we couldn't do. Well, you're giving them, you were giving them a gift. You are giving them yeah, a gift. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm honoring them at the same time, absolutely. But I, I think that you know, you're selfish, you're egotistical, you're all these ways that we're kept away from the honoring of this magnificent self. You know, James Hillman talked about the innate image, you know, this encoded pathway of possibility that lives at the heart of your unique selfhood. Oh, that's right. Not transcending it, of identifying it, excavating it, honoring it, actualizing it, humanifesting it. I mean, if we had more people doing that, finding their path and purpose, I mean, you know as well as I do that when you find that, the last thing you want to do is harm anybody because you're so gratified, it becomes a buffer against the madness of the world becomes a buffer against your own head. It becomes a wonderful way to bring an offering that actually makes a difference. If we keep transcending the self, no one's going to bring anything. Nobody's going to be able to help this species. Exactly. And and you, you just alluded to this, to the degree that you are tuning into your soul's code and activating it. You're not egotistical. You don't have any need to, for one-upmanship and to create some hierarchy where I'm better than you. You, you are completely immersed in the joy of, of expressing what your particular mission on earth is. I think abuse of power becomes impossible once you've done this kind of work because you're not trying to fill a hole in the unhealthy aspect of the ego. You've developed a fortified sense of self. You don't think you're all that, but you think you have something to offer. And I think you've done enough work within the localized self on a healing and transformational level that I think you then do naturally move in the direction on a generosity level of wanting to bring offering horizontally to the world around you. So few people get to go through that process because the self is bashed, the ego is bashed. Yeah. If they say, I'm, I'm a singer, mom, I'm going to, and they're five years old, they say, don't, don't be a singer. They, they give them survivalist mantras. So they pick a practical job that will allow them to put food on the table. I understand why they do that. But I also understand that they're de-individuating the, that person. And when you de-individuate, it's very hard to find your way back to this pathway of possibility that lives right inside of your own bones. Everybody has encoded path inside of them. I believe that. 
I just, I won't let that go. And uh, if I let that go, I got a big problem, you know, but I also recognize with a much more mature understanding now how systems are designed to prevent us from accessing it. The system systematically deprives us of our motivation to be our unique genius selves. I think everybody's a genius in some particular way. And uh, we're stripped of that. We're scoured of that. And the compliment that is most meaningful to me that I get from people who read me is, you've inspired me to be myself. They don't, they don't say, I want to be like you, Rob. They say, I want to be like me. And you help inspire me to want to be me. And to me, that's the highest praise I can get. That feels really congruent with what I felt when I read you. I think that you've sustained that for decades. Cool. It's really beautiful. Andrew talks about his definition of sacred activism is that we need to do both. We need to work on ourselves and we need to work on the culture. We need to do both. We can't do just one. And, um, the way that I hold that is that there's no contradiction at all between being a gloriously individuated, differentiated self tuned into your particular soul's code and serving humanity in the specific way that right for you, helping to liberate other people to, to diminish the amount of suffering and trauma in the world. There's no contradiction. Not only that, they are synergistic. They feed each other. They belong together. And to me, that's the, that's one of the secrets that Buddhists claim of there being no self really distorts because we need to be our beautiful, individual, differentiated, individuated self in order to accomplish anything that's genuine, in order to be in relationship with other individuated souls. You can't be in a relationship if you don't have a self. You need to have a self to be in a fully embodied relationship. They don't want to be in a fully embodied relationship. Listen, and don't get me started on Buddhism. I mean, the Buddha was the great bypasser of all time, in my view. So we can spend a lot of time on that. When I was writing soul shaping, I thought of this term, Western consciousness, because I felt like my work was to find this point of balance, sacred point of balance between what I would call the oceans of essence, which is kind of the unity consciousness experience, and my individual droplet of meaning. And there were times in my process where I had to spend more time with the individual droplet of meaning. You don't want to go so far in that direction because that becomes sort of narcissistic and you're unaware of your connection to the bigger picture. At other times, it made sense to move more in the direction of the unified field, uh, the oceans of essence. Of course, if you go too far in that way, you're bypassing the self, which is what most of patriarchal spirituality is about. I think this is the, this is the work to find this place. I feel like that's in a way what you were saying, where we're blending the healthiest aspects of Eastern consciousness, which is the awareness of a unified field, and the healthiest aspects of the Western consciousness, which I believe is the importance of a healthy self-concept, self-actualization, and be psychologically worked through so that you don't get in your own way everywhere you go. You know, Unfortunately, uh, both of those tools or both of those sides tends to devalue the other in a lot of cases. And so in order to get the best of both, best of both worlds, which you did, and I think I, I did, you have to work pretty hard and you have to use a lot of discernment. It's not impossible, but it's a challenge. It's a hard work path, buddy. 
I mean, if you want to find a way to get down into your body and stay there most of the time in a, in a world that's very uncomfortable and, and not honoring of an authentic experience, I've been working hard for decades. I'm not complaining about it. I mean, I'm, I'm on the right path, but nobody ever, ever told me that being on the right path meant I was on the easy path. That's just not true. But, but I got to say, it's also fun. I can't think of anything more fun than right. this really high wire type of work where you, you know, you could fall at any moment, but you're doing it anyway. And I, I see you having a lot of fun in your life and your work. And so I know that even though it's hard, hard for you, you're, you're enjoying it and it shows. And that's part of why you're, work is effective is because it does come from joy and a passion and a, and a zeal for a lost for life. I find this creative process so gratifying. It just lights me up to find the words, to find a, a next level of understanding within myself yeah. and then bring it to people that actually give a shit about what I have to say. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, as hard as it is on one administrative level, it's fantastic to no longer have that feeling I had in the law years when I was wrestling inside and confused as to what my directionality was. And then to know that I'm absolutely where I belong, whether it's difficult or not, is delightful. It's delightful. Part of the delight, I think, is that a lot of people are listening to you and drawing inspiration from you. That's not all of it. Part of the delight is just the sheer joy of tapping into your own creative resources. That's an important part of it. Part, part of it, though, is also that you're inspiring other people. And uh, I think you've done a good job in that regard, too. I, I'm not sure exactly how you did it, but it seems to have occurred naturally. I don't see you selling your soul in order to do it. You somehow figured a way to get the word out about who you are and what your ideas are in a way that feels genuine and, and natural and uh, doesn't I mean, my, my bullshit detector is pretty high and I don't, I just don't, it doesn't operate for you. I, I just feel like spirit you access as you create has somehow been translated into the spirit with which you transmit that uh, creative expression. Thank you for saying that. I never think before I put up a post about marketing, I mean, unless it's a course or something like that, I often put up posts that I lose a thousand people, but it feels true to my soul to put that post up and, this is just who I am. I, I left, uh, when I left law, I left the likelihood of great fame and success in the legal world in Canada. And for what? To lie around on the couch and ask myself, who the hell am I for how many years? And, and then I worked like a dog, writing books, knocking on doors, selling windows. I've knocked on more doors than anybody in North America in the last 30 years, selling home improvements products. Okay. That only stopped in 2016. And then I'd come home and write to the night. So, I worked for this. This was so, my soul wanted this so bad. And that's where it comes from. And if that ever goes away, I think I'll just go off and drive a taxi or work at Tim Hortons or do something else that just feels genuine and honest. Um, yeah, this is real for me. And I think that this is about being self-originating. I think this is the term that keeps coming to mind that it's to encourage people in the direction of really mining the self for all the information they need. And clarity that they need as to who they are and why they're here that sitting before the guru i mean i understand why we godjectify other why we're looking for daddy why we're looking for god because god is unseen and all the rest of that but really at the heart of it it's all in your bones and once you get that and you got to stay there sometime for a long time because there's so much conditioning in the way of being able to access your true voice but if you do 
and you find it, you don't want to let go of that for any seeming reward because there is no greater reward, really. What's the great reward? I, I turned down so many opportunities. I resisted and rejected famous political people who were connected to me because I wanted to protect my creative voice because my creative voice is all that I am. And so if everybody figured out what the thing is that they're going to protect for against everything, that's the world we want to live in. And for some people, it's, it's maybe doesn't involve pain, fame. It doesn't involve power. It doesn't involve a lot of money. It might be being the best kindergarten teacher you can be, or it might be teaching yoga to elders, or it might be um, saving the Aspens in northern Colorado. And it may generate no acclaim at all. But my understanding, my perception of the people I've known is it doesn't matter. If you're acting from your deepest sources, if you're uh, in touch with your soul's code and you're allowing that to really generate the energy of your life. You, you don't need money, fame, and power. That That is its own reward. Peace with path. Peace with path. Wow. What a thing. What a thing. Great. Anything else come to mind you want to share? You said plenty about this, but it's been coming up for me lately uh, in many ways, and that is how important our stories are. And the, the movement uh, to separate us from our stories, to shame us for our stories, to uh, belittle and demean our stories, I understand that the impulse may come from the fact that some of our stories are particularly sad and rooted and immersed in trauma and and we're a little addicted to uh, the sad and demoralizing stories but that doesn't mean that all stories are bad and shameful and to be dispensed with there is a way to, to get to stories that are more empowering you might have to live with your sad stories for a while and dive into them and get some help in untangling them but the object is not to rid yourself of stories that's to fulfilling the soul's code. What is my story? It's fascinating. What's your story? It's fascinating. It's mysterious. It keeps evolving. You never know what's going to come next. That's a magnificent aspect of human life. Why would we ever want to shame it and, and do without it? So that's a pretty important thought for me lately. I mean, I think that the bashing of story, the turning around of story, the diminishment of story, of course, there's times when we're storying in a way that's not congruent with what's best for us. We need a different perspective. There's nothing wrong with that. But my story is my glory. You know, when I get rid of my story, I get rid of my booby. I loved my booby. My booby fed me and made me strong enough to do this work in the world. And I think we have to be careful. And, you know, I'm very aware of Byron Katie's work and if somebody's inviting you to turn your story around and look at it from a different perspective, if the intention of that is for you to see it through a more expansive lens, then it's okay. But if the real intention is emanating from the belief that all of our stories are an illusion as yet another example of dissociated patriarchal spirituality, then it's bang on dangerous. Because now you're leading people, often trauma survivors, who already don't have enough healthy self to hold on to, 
in the direction of fragmenting and dissociating from their story and themselves, and they've got nothing left to stand on. So can I read a quote from Articulations about exactly this? Yeah. Okay. It's one thing to briefly detach from personal story in the hopes of gaining a different perspective. It's quite another to deny our storied roots altogether. What will we stand in then? At a time when our stories have been shamed and shunned in the spiritual community, it's all the more imperative to revive them and make luminous their sacred transformative properties. The past is not an illusion, as many would suggest. It is the ground of our being, the karmic field for our soul's transformation, a living vibration that echoes on, the mystery that threads right through our history. Story is where we come from. Story is what roots us in the present. Story is how we arrive at the next place intact. A spirituality without story is like a body without breath, dead to the world. Close quote. Well, that's indigenous cultures are alive with story. Their social relations depend on the telling of stories, the sharing of stories, the keeping alive of stories. I, I don't want to overgeneralize, but a lot of indigenous peoples, spirituality is rooted in the glory of stories and, and how that sustains them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, um, this is, I think this, this story turnaround game is very dangerous. And I think we really need to understand the distinction between a healthy turnaround and a nullifying. Yes. yes you, you said it really well. And I, I think that's the key. We don't want to be, uh, dogmatic, unnuanced people, but we want to acknowledge that some stories would best be turned around and, and altered. We don't want to completely do away with the concept of turning stories around, but there's a way to do that that's healthy and strong. I think so often the reason why we end up in a landscape of mischaracterizing our, our experience in the form of stories is because we, nobody ever taught us anybody how to listen to anybody. So we have all this material inside of us related to say a sequence of events or a dynamic and it congeals into like a weapon a storied weapon that turns against us if we really were encouraged to process things to heal things to release things i think our stories would become more aligned with reality so i don't think the answer is to pull up and out of story to transcend story it's to drop deeper into our bones and to learn through authentic relating practices how to space hold for each other's stories so that the story can find its rightful home. Well, as you know, unfortunately, a, a lot of storytelling in our culture is carried out by corporations with a very narrow view of what story means and with plots that are, there are about seven plots in all the movies of the world and they often uh, depend on um, violence and conflict. Ursula Le Guin uh, had a very articulate uh, critique of the, the corporate stories that all have the same, they're, they're like, they're shot like an arrow and they land someplace and that's it. She was talking about stories that are circular and spiral and, and that all don't always depend on conflict. But unfortunately, the, the storytelling apparatus is pretty much appropriated by corporate sources, whether that's journalism or entertainment or government. And uh, it kind of does demean the power of stories, I think. And so the kind of thing that you were just talking about, in which 
we would be more present for each other's stories is, I think, numb to a certain degree by the fact that we're all pounded by these one-dimensional stories that are based on conflict, and we have this very specific idea of what a story is, when, in fact, if you really if you really get down and listen to each other's stories, they're very different from what Hollywood tells and, and what journalists tell, for the most part. Invariably so. Invariably so. I mean, I'm, what would happen to all these structures if we began to individuate and develop multi-aspected consciousness, you know, rooted in all of the possible human ways of being in this world and and actualizing all our skill sets and bringing and exploring all our gifts and offerings and how would they ever sell anything to us? I mean, it's, yeah. So this is the, this is the battle of consciousness and it's, it's, it's within the spiritual world. It's within all of these systems for the development of the sovereign, actualized, purposeful and gratified individual uh, against a whole bunch of systems that want nothing to do with that. And I think we really need to name this now. And as we're getting closer and closer to this precipice, um, and really understand, at the very least, understand what we're up against. Even if we're not going to take action, let's at least understand it and try to see it for what it is. And I believe that if we do see it for what it is, we will be prompted to take action. Well, here, here's a thing that you and I might disagree on. I don't know. I'm, I, and I, I won't talk forever, but. I think one of the key modes of patriarchal civilization and spirituality is the belief in there being such thing as perfectionism. It's also referred to as the nirvana fallacy, that if something's not perfect, it's no good. But I think in our evolution, I have come to the conclusion that it's not going to be either or. It's not going to be suddenly everything's fixed. Or suddenly everything goes to hell. It's unfortunately it's going to be incremental. It's going to be a little at a time. It's I like to think of the idea that we are in the midst, middle of the apocalypse right now. The apocalypse is not in the future; it's happening right now. And the apocalypse is both real in the sense of things falling apart, deep corrosion and corruption. But the original meaning of apocalypse was awakening and uh, revisioning. And I think a lot of that's going on side by side. So the two apocalypses are interwoven. Sometimes they're coming from the same source. I think that if a revolution comes, it's going to have to, we're going to have to bear with the, the terror and the horror and just keep plugging away with our awakening version of apocalypse. Do the best we can, not expect that one day there's going to be perfection or that one political candidate is going to be the perfect savior for us, or one teacher is going to be the perfect savior for us, or there's some perfect teaching that explains everything. So that one would, I would wish that it wasn't like that because it's it's less glamorous and in in a way it's it's less dramatic. But um, that's the conclusion I've come to in the political sphere as well as the sphere we're talking about, the remaking of what spirituality means. I mean, to think that there's going to be this dismantling of these unhealthy structures, which seems inevitable and necessary, and that we're suddenly going to pop up with the new world um, feels ridiculous to me. I do think it's all going to happen at the same time. And 
three steps forward, 2.9843 steps backwards. Of, right. I mean, if I just think about it in terms of the individual and how much trauma most individuals are carrying, just to empty out that work, that stuff, to convert it into transformation and development and awareness and awakening and all. I mean, just think about how it takes us a lifetime to even move three or four core pieces to some extent. So how can we change all of this quickly? We can't. We have to be grounded and realistic about that. And and we all know about integration. It's like people can have all the peak experiences they want on their healing journey, but if they don't integrate it into anything real and sustainable, ultimately nothing changes. So it's sociologically and culturally the same. But I'm hopeful at the very least, that we'll get our revolution on sooner rather than later. So at least we can start tipping into something that feels a little bit more hopeful than what we're seeing right now. Well, uh, the last thing I'll say is that I think you and I are similar in that we don't present a neat system that you can follow step by step. I mean, there are, you have, you made that wonderful list of what patriarchal spirituality is, but it, it's complicated and it's poetic and it's nuanced and and I don't have any I never tried to turn pronoia into some the school of pronoia and you, you start here and you do this next and you do so you and I don't do that and so I think that's the proper way to do the revolution actually is by not imitating corporate models of this is the perfect neat system we're not doing that but I think that's important that we not do that because that's the way we reinvent the, the milieu. That's how we reinvent the zeitgeist. I mean, I feel like what we're saying at a core level is the one thing that we know and we agree on, and a few things, but on a primary level, is let's just get into our bodies and see if we can figure out a little better from that place. And I don't know exactly what that'll look like in terms of how we humanifest things in this world, but it's got to be a whole lot better than what we do from this yeah. disembodied and disconnected from the mother state that we live in. My homework assignment for you is would be to, uh, to tell me uh, five or eight hopeful signs that you have that this is underway or that, that our, our reawakening part of the apocalypse is in progress and vital and gurgling and, and happening. So if, I would love to hear that from you at, at some point. What, what's your hopeful about? How much time do I have to pre- prepare that list for you, teacher? Can you give me a week? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Do I have any homework for you, Mr. Bradley? <laughs> um, no, I don't. I don't. Well, you've given me a lot of homework just by preparing for the podcast, and our talk today has been wonderful homework. It's, it's helped um, advance some of my ideas and, and co- coalesce some of the other ones, and gotten a very beautiful, intimate uh, reception from you about how you hold these things, and that's different than reading about them on the page, and very meaningful to me to see how you actually speak and, and, and present your ideas. That's that's wonderful. I, I really uh, love that. Thank you. Your validation means a lot to me on my path. Cool. It really does. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. The dark is all around me, but I'm so glad it found me. Over the moon and through stars. Hell
Those come straight for my heart.